I was just, you know, you get to talk soccer with people, which is, for me is always fun. And as I was talking soccer with these, these uh, guys, I, we got talking about uh, little kid soccer. And uh, one of the experiences I've had is probably for the next last decade, I've been coaching soccer here in Moose Jaw with Moose Jaw Soccer Association and uh, always basically coaching my kids' teams. And uh, it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed it. But um, I think, I'm just going to throw this out there. I think I figured out we have lost three championship games along the way due to one factor, one single factor. And that is you cannot convince a little kid to play net in the championship game. That is the one sole factor. We've lost three. In fact, I was recounting them the other day with my sons, but there's three actual ones. And the one that I'll tell you about really this morning was um, we got to the game. I had, the team we were going to play was good, but we were good too, and I thought, you know, we have a chance. And I had worked hard at putting together our formation, where, the positioning, making sure everybody was going to be able to play to their strengths. This was going to be our finest hour. This was going to be amazing. And I get the kids in the huddle before the game, and I said, I know this other team's never been beaten. They've never been beaten. But we're the next best thing, and I want you to hear this formation. It starts with... Little Billy, you're going to be our goalie today. And that's where it fell apart. Because <laughs> little Billy burst into tears. And he said, I don't want to play goal. I said, no, little Billy, you need to play goal. You're, you, when I, I've looked at it all. I formula, I've got it all down to a formula. I know every kid in their best position. Your best position is goal. If you're in net, we win the game. He says, but I want to score a goal for my mom. Now, what I wanted to say was, little Billy, for the next 60 minutes, I am your mom. <laughs> Get in that. <laughs> now, my topic this morning is about emotional immaturity. <laughs> and some of you are picking up that it's not just kids who have it, but coaches do too. In fact, we often end up very unhappy places in our lives because of our own emotional immaturity. Worse than that, we often frustrate other people because of our desire to be seen as good. I want to score a goal for my mom. Well, this weekend I had the exact same temptation. I'm running around with 18-year-old guys and I'm like, I want to show them I still got it or ever had it. I'm not sure which, right? There's things going on inside of me and I'm like wrestling with them. I remember, we, we, this is so surreal. I'm lying in like a, a like, um, just this sort of extra room connected to the dorm. I'm like, I'm, I'm 45, I'm sleeping in a dorm, I can't believe this. Anyhow, I'm lying there and I'm thinking at night, I'm like, God, purify my motivations this weekend. Because <laughs> I could be, you know, trying to prove that I got it instead of passing the ball. There's lots of ways in which it all falls apart. We frustrate others because our desire to be seen as good instead of being honest and real about where we're really at. Um, but I, I want to talk about emotional immaturity in the church. In the church, not just Hillcrest, but in, in the lives of Christians. The same patterns that we find uh, outside the church, in our culture, we find inside the church. That shouldn't surprise us. We're, we're products of our culture. We grew up in Canada. We're, we, we've got a lot of the same hang-ups. Um, in fact, every sin that the Bible describes and every emotional issue uh, that, that we see there uh, is the same inside the church and outside the church. We, we see men and women who make genuine commitments to Jesus Christ, but still struggle as much as anyone does with their marriages, divorces, friendships, parenting, singleness, their sexuality, their addictions, insecurities, their drive for approval, their feelings of failure, depression at work and church at home. Uh, now, let me just say, the presence of sin and emotional dysfunction should not surprise us. I think we all get it, right? That for many of us, that's why we've come to Christ. This was the big motivation, because we realized uh, sort of the brokenness that was on the inside. But here's the thing that maybe does surprise us, the lack of change over time. The lack of change over time. Because we, we expect Deep, transforming life change when we come to Christ. We expect that. 
We say, well, I, I, you know, um, see if I can quote or at least paraphrase our mission statement. Uh, we strive to see all people reconciled to Christ. Oh, my goodness. I'm drawing a blank. And mature in Christ is the other part. I, I, that was really a paraphrase, but that is it. Reconciled to Christ in relationship with him, but also mature in Christ as well. And it's that maturing piece that we're talking about here, but it's actually sometimes puzzling to us. Why do I still struggle with that same hang-up? Why do I still, um, uh, why, am I, why isn't this fixed in me? I've been following Jesus for, for, for three years or, or five years or ten years or thirty years. When we, when we finished the Titus series, so we did, we did four weeks in, the, in the, looking at the letter to Titus, um, there was one phrase I never got to, but it's the phrase that's sort of been sticking with me since then. Um, it's the, the phrase, heir of eternal life, that we have our heirs of eternal life. And it's talking about how living good lives, because we are heirs of eternal life, because, we've, because of all that we've received in Jesus, our lives are actually internally transformed. And I got to the end of that series and I thought, boy, we really, you know, hopefully painted a picture of the kind of good community, the culture within a culture that the church is meant to be. But that doesn't mean we did all the work to become that. It doesn't mean that we are now there just because we talked about it. It actually means that there's unfinished business. Uh, that was what hit me. I, I, I felt like the good news about Jesus still has to do a lot of work left in, has a lot of work to do in me. I was staggered, in fact, by the implications of the gospel, the scriptures that we were reading. Um, like, for example, this, this phrase, the heir of eternal life. If I have the promise of eternal life, what should scare me? You know, Paul said, this life, it's all about Christ, and to die is gain. It's even better. You get to be with Christ. So what should scare you? Why, you, why, are we, why do we deal with fear still in our lives? Why is there still insecurity bubbling up from underneath? If we are heirs of eternal life. I, I was thinking, how do I make what's true on the pages of Scripture real in my life and, and in our lives, right? Uh, I've got a picture. I hope, I hope we can pull it up on the slide there. Iceberg picture. You got that picture? Just see if we can find it. Sorry, my notes. I gave, no, no. Okay, we're not going to pull it up. Imagine an iceberg. <laughs> well, you know what? You know the thing about the iceberg. You only see 10% of it, right? You can see the surface, the tip of the iceberg, and then underneath the waterline, so you got this iceberg tip, is this big, the rest of it, Right? And so we use the phrase, the tip of the iceberg. That's just something in the common language that we use. Um, how come some of the spiritual transformation that Christians experience is just tip of the iceberg? How come you actually see transformation in Christians and you see one area of their life transformed but not another area? That's, that, I always find that a little bit of puzzling. It's like, how come God changed this, gave them so much joy, so much hope, so much purpose, and yet they still struggled with deep resentments and anger over here, or maybe those ones aren't the best corollaries. But, but you know, God changed you in this way. God didn't change you in this way. This is what I'm basically pointing out. And um, I even had a conversation with someone this week. We were, we were just talking about that because we've seen that. You know, if you live long enough, you see that in the lives of people. You say, this person really changed, except for this one area never got touched. Like, what? Why? See, we want a spiritual transformation that goes beyond the tip of the iceberg. It goes below the waterline. We want to see God really bring transformation into the deepest parts of our lives. So what's the answer? Well, I'm going to give you a short answer, then, then we'll dive into it a little more deeper. Um, I think there's two things that come to play, and we're going to talk about these over the next number of weeks. One is just confessing our sins. Um, sometimes Christians don't actually just deal with their sin. I mean, God forgives us our sins, so that the penalty of sin is taken away, right? Separation from God is gone, right? That's not a deal anymore. But that, const that relationship with God is it, like sort of that family relationship relating to God as your father. That uh, sometimes isn't what it should be because we just don't deal with the things that... Um, become a difficulty or sort of in our relationship every day. So, so we have eternity with God to look forward to. We have the, the, the promise of salvation, but somehow I'm not 
I'm not confessing my, I'm not dealing with the sin in my life. So that's the first part. But I want to say there's, there's more than just that, because I, I believe that Christians could confess all of their sins and still find out there's stuff bubbling up from within their heart that they don't know what's going on. There's anger, there's rage, there's malice, there's lust, there's greed, and they're like, whoa, I confessed all my sins. Where is this coming from? And so I think the other part is that we need to become emotionally whole as well. So it's, I think it's spiritual maturity and emotional wholeness are inseparable. They actually come together. They, they really should be together. Right? And so I don't want to be the church where it's like, hey, everybody just confesses their sins. We got that all fake. But we're actually really jerks. But on the flip side of the coin, I don't want to be the kind of church who's like, oh, we're just, we're just trying to, you know, kumbaya ourselves into a state of, you know, happiness and love and all those things. But we're totally disregarding what God says about sin. Right? I think both these things need to come together. And so confessing our sins and dealing with our emotional issues are, are part and parcel. That's why we have two set free retreats a year. If you, haven't, if you don't know what a set-free retreat is, it's a, it's a weekend set aside to focus on learning how to deal with sin, hurts, hang-ups, and struggles that we all face. And uh, we just are, are, are chipping away. How do you change a culture? You do it a piece at a time. And we're chipping away at the, the transformational change that we believe God wants to bring to our church community. Right? I, um, so, so, again... Confessing our sins, which is a command of Scripture, but it's hardly done in the North American church. We want to actually do it. We want to actually do what the Scriptures say. The second part is the, the, tr- the transformation of the, the emotional life or the inner healing, right? And in, inner healing, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll spell that out. It's spiritual and emotional health that comes from allowing God to address our specific hurts. This often includes addressing lies we've come to believe and replacing them with the truth. And so those are, you know, why do we have set free retreats twice a year? We are, we, are, we are biting off bit by bit by bit the cultural change we want to see. Back it up. That God wants to see. He wants to transform us from the inside out. And so we are strategic, right? We say, well, let's plan for that. Let's have a plan for sin. Let's have a plan to deal with sin. Let's have a plan to deal with emotional woundedness and, and, uh, and let's become the men and women that God has in mind for us to become. So what does it look like when we become like that? Well, let's look at, uh, I'm going to jump all over. I'm just apologize to our PowerPoint guys in advance. I just reorganized my notes. Uh, Galatians 5, and 23 gives us a picture. It says, but the fruit, it'll come up there eventually. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, oh, forbearance, sorry, I memorized it in King James. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But I want to, yeah, there we go, there's the end of it. But I want to also look at it uh, in the message version. Let me read it to you out of the message version, and... um, This is a more expanded, sort of paraphrasy version of it. It says, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way of life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. So we've got this beautiful picture of maturity, of spiritual maturity, of emotional health, and, uh, and, and many people make progress towards these goals, but then we see that others don't. And, and I want to talk a little bit about what I think might be some of the difference makers in whether you make progress or whether you don't. And so we're going to look at the life of two kings, but mainly we're going to look at the bad example more than we look at the good example, but we'll, we'll, we'll end with the good example. So it's Saul and David. So 1 Samuel 13 is where we're going to, we're going to look at this example. Um, by the way, both these guys start out humbly. They're, hum- they're farm boys. They're both farm boys, take care of livestock, and uh, Saul's big and tall, impressively tall, 
David's good-looking and handsome, probably shorter, you know, if you can want to picture the two characters in your mind. And, uh, and Saul is chosen as the first king of Israel. And um, things go good for a little bit. Spiritually, it seems like Saul is in, in tune with God. He's, uh, he hangs out with guys who are known as the prophets, and he joins them in prophesying. It's, you know, some really, he's had some really ex- amazing spiritual experiences early on, but then um, things go off the rail. And I'm not going to get... It's, it's fascinating if you want to read the story, 1 Samuel. Read 1 Samuel, and it is, it is a really good read, actually. But I'm going to just grab a few snapshots that talk about the internal workings of the heart uh, for Saul, and, and then also talk a little bit about David as well. So, they finish, they're in a scenario, and Saul is, Saul is waiting for Samuel, who's the prophet of the land, to come and offer sacrifices, and long story short, he's impatient, and so he does what he's never been called to do. He jumps in and he offers the sacrifice instead of Instead of being patient, remember that's one of the fruit of the Spirit's forbearance, patience. He doesn't exhibit that fruit of God's Spirit that is patience and, and also knowing the role you're supposed to play. And he, he goes ahead and offers a sacrifice instead. And this is how, what Samuel says when he finally arrives. Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. Now, let me, I want to zone in on this one phrase. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. What is God looking for? He's looking for people who are after his heart. The challenge is that we have a a battle inside of us where we are drawn to be all about our heart, right? Just follow your heart. Right? That's, a, that's a phrase, it's a common phrase, and it's just follow your heart, right? And I, I'm not sure if anyone actually does really follow your heart. I think you actually make decisions that lead your heart, or you should. Uh, but in, regardless, whose heart are you after? God said, I'm looking for a leader, I'm looking for a man. I've sought out a man that's after my heart that pursues my heart. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for, especially in the king of Israel, but that's what I'm looking for in everyone is people who are after my heart. And so it's the first significant indictment against Saul is that he's not a man after God's heart. He's not pursuing God's heart. He's actually uh, begun this tragic descent in pursuing his own heart, pursuing his own kingdom, pursuing his own fame, pursuing his own glory, and not God's. That's where he is at this point in the story. This, is, this tragic turn has, has begun, but it will get worse. Let's jump to 1 Samuel 14. It says, 1 Samuel 14, 43 to 45, it says, now this is a story, um, they're going to fight the Philistines. The Philistines were always better equipped, they had better weapons, you know, and, uh, but God miraculously helped them with, in their fights with the Philistines, but they're constantly battling with this. He has a son, Saul's son, his name is Jonathan, and uh, Jonathan has this, cooks up this plan to go sneak attack the Philistines, really sort of senses this is from God, let's go do it, and God does a miraculous thing. He doesn't tell his dad. That's telling. His dad's the king, but he doesn't tell his dad, right? Uh, you'll see more as you unfold sort of his dad's temperament, why he probably doesn't tell his dad, right? I think it's sort of on Jonathan for this one, but I think it's mostly on Saul that he doesn't tell his dad. And so then they're, they're, they're having this victory, good things are happening, and suddenly uh, Saul comes up with this uh, leadership decision out of nowhere. He says, okay, we're going we're gonna, to you know, continue in our battle against the enemy, but nobody can eat any food while we do this. It's not like God told him to do this. He just suddenly pulls this out. I don't know if you've ever been in a leadership environment where the leader suddenly says, I just decided we're going to do this radical change. And everybody's like, why? Why? What's the rationale? Please tell us any of the thoughts you had getting to this conclusion. That's not what they got. It's just like nobody can eat. And it comes out later on that Jonathan doesn't hear that command. He's off doing something else. He comes back. They find honey in the forest. Nobody touches it. Jonathan comes along, dips his rod in the honey, and goes, hey, this is good honey. Saul comes to this, so it comes to this moment. 
Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. He doesn't know up to that point. So Jonathan said, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff. Now Saul has said, whoever has done this has to die. So he goes, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. I'm not sure how to read that, because in the, in the NIV, it's got an exclamation part at, the, part at the end, so I'm not sure if it's like, and now I must die. Or it's, and now I must die? I'm not sure which it is. But it's sort of like this moment where it's like, because I had some honey? Dad? Anyhow, I'm not sure what he's thinking. I'm not sure whether Jonathan is just noble and I must die. You know, I'm willing. I, I serve the Lord and I will die. And Saul says, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. In other words, yes, you're going to die, son. Because I made this vow in front of everybody that whoever ate during this day would die. And it's like, this moment of madness. This moment of madness. And it's so crazy what's going on that the people themselves stand up to the king. The men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who brought about the great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. Okay. So sometimes dads want to kill their kids. But... Generally, that's not a good leadership uh, principle. It's generally, this is, like, this is insanity. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Because he's one of the most insecure leaders. He's become a very insecure leader. And as in, when you become an insecure leader, you, you make those kind of rash things. You say, well, we're going this way no matter what. And everybody's like, whoa, 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 can we consult on this? Can we talk about this? Will you listen to reason? Will you, you, you know, no. no. We're going. So I'm a good leader. I'm a confident leader. And I was like, oh no, oh no, what are you doing? And it's like, even if it means the death of my son, oh my goodness, what is going on? Insecurity. Our fears cause us to do terrible things in our lives. Because we, we fear the, the approval of people, we fear looking bad, we fear, uh, we, we, don't, we want to save face. Let me give you, this is the last passage on Saul, and then we'll go to David. Chapter 18 of Samuel. David sort of is showing up on the scene. He's just had the great victory over Goliath, one of the Philistines' champions. And it says, after David finished talking with Saul, in First Samuel 18, it says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Right? So these guys, Jonathan and David, became good friends. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his Family And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. He took off his robe he was wearing, gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, bow, and belt. So these guys, best friends. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. So far, no problem. That pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. Well, that would be sort of fun. It'd be fun to be the king. You have a victory, you go home, all the women come in, singing, dancing, you're like, yeah, I'm the man, right? With joyful songs and timbrels and lyres, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. Woo, I love it. Like, it's great when people exaggerate for you, right? Yes, of course, I personally have slain thousands. And David has slain tens of thousands. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has tens of thousands, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. This is probably an understatement. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Let me give you, when you become, when you're insecure as a leader, here, let me just throw this out. You can't lose what you have. You can't lose what you have because it defines you because it's sort of what's propping you up, right? There's lots of different ways that we form our identity as we grow up. We, we might form our identity by what we have, right? Our possessions, right? I have, I've accumulated this many toys or this much land and houses or whatever. This, this is my identity, right? I can't lose that or I'll be threatened in my identity. Or it's what you do, right? It's your performance, Right? If I, if I lose my, my uh, like, very interesting, because, I mean, we live in a world where jobs come and go, right? People have their jobs, people lose their jobs. 
it's a very, like, that moment when you've lost your job is a pretty telling moment. It's a pretty telling moment. It's a pretty vulnerable moment, right? That's the moment where, you, am I still enough? Am I, who am I? Some of those questions come up, like when you retire, that's a challenging moment, right? Is my identity completely locked up in what I do? Or do I have another identity? And I mean, I would obviously point to our identity as children of God in relationship to Christ. Or is my identity locked up in my performance, right? Or my popularity, right? My, my popularity, my approval of others. What if that goes south? What if everybody likes me and then someday they don't like me? Because that can happen too. So, so all these things sort of are, are, are things that spin around in our minds. My mind too, my mind too. Let me tell you something I've told some of my closer friends, I haven't told you guys yet, but I'll tell you now. When uh, a couple years ago, there was, they're searching for a senior pastor and there's some talk and looked like it might be something for me to consider. And I sort of went away to pray and think about it. And two questions, through the process, lots of questions, but then eventually two questions. One, Am I willing? Am I willing to do this role? That was a big question, right? Everybody asks that question with every job, right? Am I willing to work at Burger King? Mm, maybe, you know, you know, so pros and cons, you think it through. But am I willing was the first question. But then the second question got bigger. I realized the second question was, was, got bigger after I, after I said, yes, I am willing. Then the second question was, do I need this? And that was the more telling invasive, penetrating question for me. Do I need this? Is there something in me, some emptiness, some woundedness, some lack of something, that I need this? Because if there is, there's going to be something really twisted about how this happens. It's not going to go well. If I'm, if I'm uh, chasing life from a job which I really should be getting from my relationship with Christ, it won't go well. The cracks might not show up right away, but they will show up. So this is a question I have actually shared with other people who are just about to enter into pursuing a job, I, I, you know, or, 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 or a thing that might be even considered more calling or profession. I often say, like, you know, do you need this? Are you okay if you don't get this? Can you be open-handed about the things that are in front of you, the opportunities in front of you? If, if, if you don't get everything you're, you're wanting to get out of it, and maybe it's, it's, it's possessions, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's, uh, you know, performance, whatever it is that, that threatens your identity. Do you need this? Can you, open, can you, can you go open-handed before God and say, you give and take away, give or take away, I'm going to praise you no matter what. Now, this is not just a question for when you start. This is a question all the way along that you have to keep asking yourself because your heart can get twisted along the way. When Saul was first asked to become king, he hid from it. He recoiled. He was humble. He, he hid in the baggage, it says in the scriptures, because he didn't want anyone to see. You know, he, I'm a tall guy. I'm going to go hide down here, right? I don't want to be the king. I, didn't, I never signed up for this. I never had ambition to be this, but he was called to be that. But then, after a while, hear what he's saying today about David. This guy's going to take the kingdom from me. My precious You could start well, but you have to be careful. You have to be careful about what is your source of life. Let me show you just one more part about Saul. He said, Saul was, okay, there's a little verse in there about how he tries to kill him with a spear. I'm just going to keep going. That's obviously a sign of emotional uh, immaturity, <laughs> trying to kill people with spears. Um, especially the guy who's trying to help you because David was really loyal, right? He, he was the ultimate loyal employee to a bad boss. If you struggle in that situation, read the First Samuel. See how loyal David was to, to Saul. And it's an incredible 
thing. If you're in a situation where your, your supervisor, your boss, you sort of, oh, I don't really like them and stuff like that, just see how loyal David was. It's an incredible challenge to us to be, to be faithful, even in tough situations. So Saul, um, I'm going to go to verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So even someone else's relationship with God can be threatening to us in our immature uh, emotions. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. You say, oh, it sounds like he gave him promotion, but you'll find out why. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything that he did, he, and did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So he was afraid of them. There's the, the fear of David's already been mentioned. So Saul said to David, this gets really twisted. Okay, you got to get ready for this. Okay, this is how not to parent. Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, now that's what he said publicly. Here's the hypocrisy of it. Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. He obviously dodges spears really well. Let the Philistines do that. So Saul's plan is this. I need David dead. And in order to get what I need, I will go to any end to get it. In fact... I happen to have a daughter who's single. And if I give her in marriage to David, he'll, he'll be so beholden to me, this commoner who marries a princess, that I can send him out on the most dangerous battles, and eventually those Philistines are going to get him. Okay? Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands Oh, let me back it up. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So his own sense of, well, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola, this other dude. So it didn't happen. So Saul's prevented, he's blocked from getting his goal. So Saul's daughter, but... Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Not pleased because, hey, that's cool, my daughter loves David too, just like everyone else does. No, pleased in a very wicked way. You'll see it unfold. I will give her to him, he thought. Okay, some people should not have daughters. Let's just say it this way. Some people should not have daughters, and not more than one, for sure. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Same plan, trying it again. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul, here's the, the kicker that worked. Then Saul ordered his attendant, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you. Look, the king likes you. Completely wrong, but... And his attendants all love you. That's probably true. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. And here's some of the most squeamish verses, in, uh, for, especially for men, uh, in the Old Testament. Here we go. Um, when Saul's servant told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Guys, just blot out that you ever heard that. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Do you, when you read to your kids at night, do you skip these bits? <laughs> I heard of one pastor who said, I intentionally never skip any of the bits. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, I try, but I, I skip a few now and again. It's all, you got to age appropriate. Anyhow, they counted them, etc. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest 
of his days. See, Saul's fear and security made him a bad king, but it also made him a bad dad. It made him a bad dad. You know, I was thinking about this, the whole family tie-in to uh, being transformed by Jesus, so Jesus really transforming us. And I, a couple weeks ago, if you're here for the Titus series, I, for a couple times I just used my hands to illustrate how the culture sometimes shifts and how Christians sometimes shift. So in the Cretan culture, remember we were talking about, that's the book of Titus written about Crete, you had people become Christians, and let's say the ring represents the Christians, they become Christians and they move away from the culture to live such good lives that the culture can't help but notice and also that anything they say badly about this strange new group sort of falls flat because they actually are really good people. They're really living good, self-controlled lives. And that's sort of admirable. And I was talking about, and I talked about Canadian culture. I said Canadian culture because like a couple hundred years ago, pretty much most of Canadians had a Judeo-Christian worldview. So there's a whole bunch of overlap in what are the values of Canadians and what are the value of Christians. And so sometimes it's really hard to tell. Is that a Canadian value or a Christian value? Or do we just hold the same value? And so we use our discernment to say, that, is, that Canadian value is very similar or maybe the same as, as what a Christian biblical value is. And so, yeah, we just, we'll just applaud that and be thumbs up that. That's awesome. But yet at the same time, we recognize that there is some shift happening in the culture and there's more values emerging that we say, whoa, those are not the same values. And so... Uh, then, we, then I asked the question, I said, what should we do with the tension as the culture moves farther and farther, and should Christians just keep as close as they can to the culture? But I encourage you, to, let's just stand exactly what the Scriptures tells us to stand, and if the culture bounces back, that's what we call revival. Great, but we're, we need to give people a clear alternative. Okay, one more. Let's say there's a family. And people become followers of Jesus in that family. Well, family is a culture all to itself. It has unwritten rules. People don't even know what they are until they break them, right? You know when people find out what the unwritten rules are? When someone marries into the family. Because they, they just think everything we do as a family is normal. The whole rest of the world is whacked. They're wrong. And then someone marries in and they say, why do you do it that way? Well, because that's normal. It doesn't seem healthy. Oh, it is. This is the only way to do it. It's like, oh, it seems like you guys are fairly dysfunctional. We are not. And you're defensive. We are. No. Mm, okay. It's like that experience. It's like, I, I really, this is my theory. This is my theory, and please don't be insulted by this, but I actually think every family is dysfunctional on some level. I actually believe that. I actually believe that. And you know what? When you're a kid, you see your family is sort of good, and there's ones down the street who do that. They're bad and stuff like that. But you grow up and you realize, hey, we're not so, like, we don't have it all together either. Right? You start figuring these things out as you go. And I'm not saying this to be, uh, okay, I'll tell you a quick story. This summer... Uh, like a whole bunch of our family got together in, back at home uh, at my mom's place, and we're sitting around the campfire, and we're telling all the, sort of the, the secret stories. It's all the kids. I don't think my, mom, my mom's out there. We're telling all the stories that probably my mom doesn't know half of them even. We're telling stories about what, what we did and all this stuff. And some of them are funny, and some of them are slightly disturbing, and some of them are borderline horrific. <laughs> and at one point, I don't remember who it was, but one of, because it's six boys and one girl. That was my family growing up. So one of the sister-in-laws, again, coming into the family, said at one point, and I think totally in jest, if I had known this <laughs> before, I'm not sure, you know? I'm not sure if I would have married into this family. And I thought, yeah, I don't think anyone would have married into this family. <laughs> A good thing we hit it really well, because nobody was signed up for this kind of this track in life, right? But we all married up, and we, were all, and we fooled you know, six girls. So it's great. My sister didn't marry up. She was already awesome and married a good guy. But anyhow, but here's the thing. Your family has its own flavor, just like mine. Uh, but just like mine, it's also marked by the consequences of the disobedience of our first parents, right? All the way back to the stories of Adam and Eve and, and, uh, and, and, and choosing fruit instead of God. 
you know, glorying in fruit instead of God and, and, and disobeying God and sin coming to the world, all that stuff. Um, all sorts of things are packaged with that. Shame, secrets, lies, betrayals, relationship breakdowns, disappointments, unresolved longings for unconditional love. They all lie beneath the veneer of even the most respectable families. Now, I'm not saying that to discourage you or to be down on your family. I think you should definitely honor your parents. If they gave you life, honor them for that. If they gave you anything more than that, honor them for that. Right? That's scriptural. We're, we're meant to honor our parents, even when it's challenging. And for a lot of people, it is, that's been one of the bigger challenges of growing up, is, is coming to that point of being able to actually honor their parents. But if that's a challenge for you, I encourage you, keep pursuing it. Keep pursuing it. The, it's worth it in the end. You'll, you'll, you'll come to that when, when you come off the other side, you'll see that it is worth it in the end. But, so I'm not saying all this so you get down on your family or your family of origin, but your family of origin is not the spiritual family of Jesus. It's not necessarily a carbon copy, right? It's just like the cultural thing. It's like, where does, what, is, what is the values of the spiritual, of Jesus? What is the character of Jesus? What is, what is that? And then what are the family values? So maybe you grew up in a Christian home, so there's some overlap. So you got to do the same thing as we do with the Canadian culture. You discern. You say, that is good like God. So we applaud that in our family of origin. And that is something that God would dearly love to change in our lives. So we're not going to hold on to that like it's a great virtue we're going to say, God, can you change that? And this has become, for me, a, a big sort of revelation. It's saying, okay, because I did grow up in a Christian home. And I did have parents who loved God. And so there's lots of things where I can say what they valued is similar or, or the same as what God values and just celebrate it. But then I'm, more and more as they get older, it's more of a dissecting and saying, but, but what are the things, God, you would change? Because some of the hardest things to change are the things that we got from our family of origin. They're pretty, you know, it seems like, okay, following God is the chosen path I have chosen, yet following my family of origin's pattern of behavior is, seems like the default setting. It seems like I always revert back to it. Can Jesus change those patterns? Can he get so below the tip of the iceberg that he can actually change those patterns? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But we generally, there's just like Saul, afraid of David, afraid of David, afraid of David, afraid, afraid, afraid. I'm going to lose my kingdom, afraid, afraid. There are often fears that are keeping us from actually going underneath the waterline, from actually allowing God to do the work on the inside of us. And it's those fears that are keeping us back, right? We're afraid to trust God. We're afraid that, you know, I, I sort of like having God in my life, but, you know, the thing that really gives me life is this. Is, 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 I don't really know if I can move. I don't know, really know if I can let go of this thing I'm clinging to and really hold on to God. And God beckons us to come after him, to follow him. Let me just jump back into the story. So David was better, right? Perfect guy. Well, he wasn't. He was a basket case. Really. He did horrific things. One of the things that stood out to me was Saul tries to kill David by sending him into battle. When David becomes king later on, the man after God's own heart, he tries to kill a man to get his wife by sending him into battle, the exact same strategy. You say, well, David was a man after God's own heart. Well, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart then if a person who's a follower of God could do something that terrible? Well, let me tell you, I'm going to read you what David wrote after he was confronted about his sin. Right? He'd, he'd, he committed adultery and basically committed murder. And he's confronted by a prophet. Now it's not Samuel anymore, it's a prophet named Nathan. And after he's confronted, he sees his own sinfulness. 
Saul, when he was confronted about his sinfulness, got defensive, shifted the blame, said the people did this. Uh, He resisted accountability. Here's David's response after he's finally come to see his own sinfulness. Have mercy on me, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even from the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me... Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. What does it look like to have a heart after God? So many times... It means a broken heart over our sin. And a lot of times we don't want to face that. We just say, well, that's, that's sad or that's difficult or that's awkward or that's, that doesn't sound pleasant. But it's the kind of thing that God's heart leaps to respond to. When you think about the differences between Saul and David... They, all, they both started the same way, humble guys who didn't want to be king, but they didn't end up the same way. Look at uh, David's heart for God. I think there's a, let me just say, I think there's a continuum in our lives, especially when it comes to the, the, the topic we're talking about, insecure leaders, but I think over here is the place where I need so much approval from others. I need loads of it. I need tons of it. I need so much approval from others. And I think way over here on the other end of the continuum is a total different dynamic. It's self-forgetfulness. I'm not focused on myself, but it's just like, I need to give glory to God. And what takes you from here, this place of emotional insecurity, this place of emotional woundedness, to there is a a, a growing understanding of what Jesus has done for us. A, grower, a growing understanding of who Jesus is to us. Because back here, it's like, my life is approval from other people. I can't live without it. And so I'm just going to manage my life, manage my dysfunction, hide it, smother it, avoid it, do lots of image management, I could do that on Facebook, I could do that on Twitter, I can do that wherever, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it somehow so that people think well of me because I need their approval. But here's the thing, got, you start to encounter the love of God. You start to encounter how he cares for you. How he is the one that can offer you pure unconditional love. I mean, you can, maybe you have, you're married to someone great or you have someone really nice in your family or you have a grandma who's sweet as you know, candy. Maybe you have someone in your life who offers you sort of, it's like unconditional love, but I want to tell you, it's not as pure as what God can give. It's not as pure as what God can give. You start to encounter that pure unconditional love, someone who knows you down to the bottom of the iceberg and everything that's there and still loves you. And so you go, whoa, maybe I don't need to be here anymore. Maybe I, maybe I can actually, maybe I can trust God. Maybe I can face my fears. Maybe I don't actually, maybe I can, I, and you discover his love is real. His love is deep. His love is dependable. His love is not fickle. 
He loves you where you are, and you come to this place of glorying him in him. You come to this place where you're just like, oh, I don't, my need is not for the approval, this load of approval. My need is to give praise. I don't need the praise of people. I need to give praise to God because he's changed me from the inside out. God wants to go all the way down. If there's anything in your life where you think, this God can't touch. It's too attached to shame. It's too, I've got too much fear for anyone to come in there. He will, he's willing to come into that and, and, and work in that area of your life. He's willing to show his love, how dependable, how real it is, and for us to move, 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 move. And you know what? I just think, you're going to glory in something. You're going to praise something. We're praising things all the time, aren't we? We're praising our Netflix show that's our favorite. We're praising our favorite brand of wine, or we're praising our, 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 you know, our favorite sports team. Or the, our culture is praising, praising, praising something. Whatever we enjoy, we praise. And yet our, 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 our reality in this life is we're meant to enjoy God. We're meant to get to that point where his glory becomes so, uh, so, um, so much our heart's affection a heart after God, like David's, that even when we are broken, even when we fail, even when we stumble in sin, even, that, even when we, we discover darkness inside of ourselves that discourages us, that we turn to him. We turn to him. We confess our sins, and we continually become more and more emotionally whole because of the work that he's doing in our lives. And this is the journey that we're on. Worship band will invite you to come back. This is a journey that we're on and we're going on as a church. To give you a picture of a culture within a culture that's truly marked by the goodness of the character of God is one thing. But to trust that same God to lead you, to forgive you, and to lead you in your life to the point of deep transformation is another thing. So all I, all I can think I can possibly do for you is to tell you how good he is. He's so good. Because every step of trust, every step of faith, where you say, okay, God, I didn't think I could tell. I didn't think I could do. I didn't think I could deal. I didn't think I could face any of this. It's taking you closer and closer to what God wants you to. He's always intended for you to be. Let's stand together.